Kia ora. I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is my daily podcast, The Kaka, that goes out with a substack. It's all about Aotearoa's political economy, and I look at housing affordability, climate change inaction, and poverty reduction. It's a public interest journalism exercise uh, supported by paying subscribers. If you're a listening to this and you're not a paying subscriber, I'd love you to join us. And uh, you are also listening to this because paying subscribers have asked me to open it up and to spread it around. Today, I wanted to talk about some numbers that have come out from StatsNZ on our population. Net migration in the year to the end of August was 110,200. That is a new record high for any one year in terms of numbers. It means effectively that our population is growing at a rate of more than 2% per year from net migration. That is amongst the fastest population growth anywhere in the developed world and is consistent with population growth around 1.5% to 2% for the last two decades. If we continue along this road of 1.5% to 2%, For the next five decades or so, we will have a population of around about 17 million uh, within the next 60 to 70 years or so. Uh, This is not being planned for, (laughs) it suffice to say. Uh, And it's worth having a a look at the numbers and, and try to understand why it is three days out from an election we are not debating population growth and how we are funding or not funding uh, the infrastructure for that population growth. So that 110,200 actually disguises some really big numbers on both sides of the equation. So net migration, obviously, is what you get after people come in and people go out permanently. We know that, according to StatsNZ, Of that 110,200, there is actually net migration of non-New Zealand citizens to New Zealand of 152,800. And that's after 46,600 non-New Zealand citizens left New Zealand, so migrated away. There's actually migrant arrivals in the year to the end of August of 199,500. Almost all of those are people on temporary work visas who are here as backpackers uh, on a holiday work visa. They are a student. They're on a registered uh, seasonal employer scheme uh, or they're on one of the new uh, accredited employer work visas. And uh, that's on the uh, arriving side of the equation. On the leaving side of the equation of New Zealand citizens, we had net immigration of 42,600 in the year. Now that included some New Zealanders who came back, about 25,900. But there were 68,500 New Zealanders who left the country permanently. New Zealand has the third highest rate of diaspora living overseas behind Latvia 
and Lithuania and equal with Portugal. We're actually, we actually have a highest propor- higher proportion of New Zealand citizens and residents living overseas permanently as a proportion of our population than Ireland, which for a couple of hundred years was notorious uh, and famous and infamous for exporting its people because of famine and various things. Uh, obviously, they've had a boom in the last decade or so thanks to um, some big tax breaks and some luck being Brexit. The point of it is to say that there's something wrong in our economy in that we are a churn and burn economy, i.e. it's not attractive for New Zealand residents and citizens to stay here. In fact, it's quite attractive to go to Australia where wages are 30 to 40% higher, but also other countries. And we replace those New Zealanders who are our families and who we've spent quite a bit of money uh, uh, raising and educating. Uh, We replace those people with people on temporary work visas and uh, people who have come here from all over the world, uh, some with the aim of staying here permanently, uh, even though they're on a temporary work visa. Uh, some who aren't planning to stay, and uh, many of them wondering whether they'll be allowed to stay. And at the moment, we have this idea in our heads that the 199,500 who came in the last year will somehow go away sometime in the future because this migration is temporary. This is only to sort a short-term problem with a shortage of labour, which will go away at some point quite quickly, and we'll go back to what we think is a normal uh, immigration rate of about 0.5% in terms of population growth every year. That's what we've been sort of thinking about and planning about for the last 30 years or so. Turns out, though, that we've accidentally on purpose engineered population growth of 1.5% to 2% from migration. Now, uh, you may wonder, oh, hang on a minute, why why don't we then have permanent migration rather than temporary migration? Well, temporary migration is effectively our excuse, our way of telling ourselves that this is still only a temporary thing and we don't need to build the houses the schools, the roads, the railways, the hospitals, to handle all these extra people. Because they're going to go away again very shortly, um, particularly if we don't roll their visa. And I wanted to just sort of focus on this a little bit. Not only is it an awful economic strategy, because it effectively embeds in our economy a high churn rate. And anyone who knows how to run a business knows... Um, the hardest uh, customer to win is a brand new customer and or or the highest hardest worker to uh, win is a brand new worker who you then have to train Uh, but uh, you're much better off trying to keep your existing customers and your existing workers uh, because you've invested a lot in them and uh, frankly they're cheaper and easier and friendlier to keep so uh, we have develop this churn and burn economy. And I wanted to tell you a little story, 
which I think illustrates um, what this has done to us. So um, we issue these three-year uh, temporary work visas and have been for a long time. They're called skilled, skilled migrant uh, visas and usually they last three years. Um, some of them have been extended and often they are rolled. So you often have people often working in aged care, construction, who are here, still here on a temporary work visa even though they've been here for more than a decade. So they've been rolling the work visa. And um, the problem with that is if, if you are on a temporary work visa, you cannot buy property. And you also um, find it difficult to get any sort of state support. Let's say if you lose your job or um, you need ACC or anything like that. So um, what it means is that we, in theory, welcome people in, give them a job, pay them money, and then shoo them away later on. Well, that's a theory. Often we don't get around to doing that, but we also don't um, welcome them in properly and um, welcome them into our communities. The example of this is uh, a family story. Jeffrey Santos was a, is a builder from the Philippines who in the early 2010s was working in Dubai as a builder in uh, from the Philippines. Uh, that meant he was living in a shipping container and working extraordinarily hard for not much money uh, as a guest worker. He heard about the construction going on in Christchurch to repair and rebuild the homes there and managed to get hold of a work visa uh, for New Zealand to help rebuild Christchurch, like many other builders from the Philippines and Ireland and various places who rebuilt Christchurch. He came in uh, uh, 2014 to Christchurch and spent several years helping to uh, build lots and lots of houses in Christchurch, which we needed and which were great. He then managed to roll the visa and went to Queenstown to work as a subby uh, building homes in Queenstown. He couldn't afford to live in Queenstown and by then, so we're talking 2020, he had managed to bring out his wife and his young son who was four years old or so. His wife was a hairdresser in Queenstown, quite uh, important and um, high demand work. So Jeffrey Santos and his young family were becoming New Zealanders. Their son was going to school. They were starting to integrate into the community in and around Queenstown. Now, they couldn't afford to live in Queenstown. They actually lived in Arrowtown. And then COVID struck. As a subby, Jeffrey Santos was laid off very quickly. Because he's on a temporary work visa, he got no support from MSD in the form of job seeker payments or anything like that. Within six weeks, Jeffrey, his wife and his son were out of food and uh, didn't have any money to pay for food, but couldn't go back to the Philippines, obviously, because there were no flights and we're they were living in Arrowtown. This was a common problem for a lot of migrants during COVID, particularly around Queenstown. They were trapped 
had no way of earning money, were not being supported by MSD, and ran out of money for food. So the Queenstown Lakes District Council, in a very good, kind, clever move, decided to offer grocery vouchers to those people who were in that situation. Jeffrey Santos heard about this and rang up the Queenstown Lakes District Council and asked for the vouchers. They then asked him where he lived. He said he lived in Arrowtown. The problem is that was outside the boundary of the Queenstown Lakes District Council. And therefore he was not eligible as a resident living outside the boundary. He was not eligible for the grocery vouchers. He hung up and in three or four weeks time, because the lockdown was still going and he still had no money and no job, in desperation he rang up the Queenstown Lakes District Council and told them that he lived in Queenstown this time, even though he didn't. And after a few rounds of the vouchers, eventually the lockdown finished and he uh, went back to work, didn't need any more vouchers. Some bright spark somewhere in Immigration New Zealand then uh, put together a couple of spreadsheets and worked out that Jeffrey Santos had lied about where he lived when applying for these vouchers. Uh, this is a breach of uh, his employment conditions and his visa, and so Immigration New Zealand chose to prosecute him. He went through the court system, uh, he was convicted, and uh, Immigration New Zealand applied to deport him and his family. A builder, a hairdresser, and a five-year-old boy who was now connected into his school. This took over a year, there were appeals, but he was eventually deported at the end of 2021. Because New Zealand believes that its population isn't growing fast and it doesn't need those workers permanently, and so treats them as guest workers, is effectively the Dubai of the South Pacific. Now, that is where we are with our net migration, 110,200 in the year to the end of August. We're three days out from an election, and we haven't been talking about this, even though it dominates our economy, our society, who we are, how fast we're growing, how productive we are, the value of our house prices, what's happening whether our roads are congested, whether our A&E departments are empty or full. It is fundamentally a, a core thing about our political economy, but we're not talking about it. Why? Because if we would have acknowledged that we were growing our population by one and a half to two percent per year every year and that this was a permanent and long-running thing then we would have to acknowledge that we are not uh, uh, taxing charging investing enough for population growth of one and a half to two percent instead we kid ourselves that this time it's only temporary and next year we'll go back to normal 
and we won't need all these extra workers or want them. The trouble is, of course, our economy is now based on them. Uh, we expect low inflation because we're, man- we're able to bring in cheaper w- workers. We expect that there will be someone there to make our flat white, that the Ubers will remain cheap, that there will be Uber Eats on call, and that uh, our um, the people who have left, our cousins and nieces and sons and daughters to live in Australia or elsewhere, that they can be replaced by someone from the Philippines or India or South Africa, which of course they can. And that is the society we're in. But is it fair? Is it right? Is it sustainable? Well, I ask these questions of politicians regularly, and none of them will answer the question. Either they say, you can't answer the question, you can't forecast population growth. Well, that's uh, not true. We actually have StatsNZ who project population growth of around about half a percent per year based on essentially an assumption about net migration. So the current assumption underpinning the projections from StatsNZ about our population growth out past 2050 are that we will have net migration of 25,000 per year every year until 2073. Uh, Now that implies, apart from anything else, a fall, constant fall in our net migration rate. And it depends on a, a median of a survey of migration specialists done at the beginning of 2021. They were asked in the middle of lockdowns when no one was coming to New Zealand what they thought a uh, the likely net migration rate would be in thousands over the next 50 years or so. And the median response from about 30 of these migration experts was uh, uh, around about 30,000. StatsNZ chose to use 25,000 as their assumption, which implies population growth of about 0.5%, because you can be pretty sure uh, what's going to happen to those people who already live here. So they'll age, some will die. There'll be some new ones born. Essentially, the population is flat from local sources. And the change uh, factor is migration. So um, StatsNZ makes this assumption. It's a convenient one because it means that uh, politicians don't have to address this issue of are we investing enough? Are we being honest with ourselves about how fast we're growing and whether we've got the tax system right? So uh, what it means then is that we've built up, surprise, surprise, a infrastructure deficit of about $100 billion worth. And we can see it all around it, out around us. We know that we are short around about 60,000 uh, social and affordable homes, probably another 40,000, 50,000 on top of that, and all the other things that are necessary uh, to pop to to house uh, six million people or so. Uh, that is um, where we are in terms of the past deficit. The Infrastructure Commission estimates there's another hundred billion dollars that we'd need to build, even with population growth of 0.5 percent. 
Now, 1.5 to 2%, the number, of course, is much larger. And uh, to be um, reasonable and to be um, aware of the need not to uh, do an awful lot more concreting and uh, uh, building simply because of the embedded carbon. Uh, rightly, the Infrastructure Commission says we should be using um, the uh, quaintly phrased demand management tools to uh, uh, reduce uh, this deficit. Now, what they mean there is congestion charges, water charges, and effectively user pays so that um, we can move around the peaks and the troughs and we can reduce demand for the expensive uh, things and also create some new revenue streams to pay for them. Uh, that uh, makes sense. But politicians, <laughs> surprise, surprise, don't like uh, pushing through uh, congestion charges. And in fact, no government has done it yet, even though they've both suggested they'd like to or they may do in the future. They haven't actually pulled the trigger on it. Uh, that is uh, uh, where we are with our infrastructure deficits. Now, you may argue, well, surely we can just solve it. We can borrow some money or we can uh, invest some money in new machines and um, railways and uh, roads and all of that. Why don't we do that? Well, uh, we could do it with private funding, and that's where um, governments of both flavours have gone over the last 20 to 30 years. But hardly any has been built, because when you actually look at the numbers, A, you can't find a... Uh, a private uh, balance sheet, be it a fund manager or a company or a family, that is large enough to handle the scale of the infrastructure development that's needed or can do it at a cost that is affordable. Because remember, a crown, a government, has the amazing ability to force people to pay the money every year, the ability to tax. And it's a superpower that, fund, uh, that ratings agencies love and have given New Zealand a AAA credit rating for, which means that we can borrow even now at 4 or 5%. And a couple of years ago, we could borrow at virtually nothing. Uh, that is the superpower of being the government. You also have the ability to make the rules and to plan and to uh, negotiate with not just uh, buyers, but other councils, other governments, those sorts of things. The most effective, cheapest uh, way to build this infrastructure is through the Crown and, or through councils. Now, um, you could argue, why, are, why isn't that happening? Why, why aren't people doing this? We know we've got a problem. Well, A, you'll have to bring in some congestion charges or water charges uh, uh, or, or some sort of um, pollution taxes. So essentially put up taxes and or uh, increase government debt. Now, one of the reasons people don't like high government debt is because all other things being equal, it means higher interest rates at the base, which of course increases their mortgage rates, which means that the assets that they own, particularly land, are less valuable. So if you have an economy based on low-wage migration, low-investment, and tax-free gains on residential land, you don't want high public debt. You certainly want low taxes, because remember, the higher your disposable income after taxes, the more that you can borrow from the bank to buy the next rental property. 
So um, we're left in the situation of effectively uh, choosing to have a low tax, low investment, high population growth, low wage economy where the way ahead is to own land, wait for it to appreciate, and you don't have to wait long, and take all of the gains tax-free. The essential problem in our economy is that we have built it based on residential land speculation, not on growing our real wealth or our real ability to produce, but by uh, waiting for land values to increase and not taxing it. There's, of course, now a huge advantage for individual households to essentially tax-free invest in residential land. And the returns adjusted for risk are much, much higher. It's also the type of investment that you can leverage, unlike others. So you get a much higher return from your equity. We all know this. We've just spent an election campaign not talking about it because... It's been decided by both major parties that they can't win by talking about it. By not talking about capital gains tax or a land tax or effectively a tax increase, both major parties have accepted this uh, this Sergeant Schultz type situation. I see nothing. I know nothing. Let's not talk about it. And it is dishonest, it is painful to see grown-ups not address the thing that matters in front of them, and of course it leaves the problem unresolved uh, for someone else to deal with. That's today's podcast. It is Thursday, the 12th of October. I am Bernard Hickey for the Kaka, and I'd like to thank paying subscribers for helping me do this sort of work covering these sorts of things. There's a lot more detail, links, various other bits and pieces of news in today's email newsletter, including a couple of bits of um, information around infrastructure that illustrates the problem. A few weeks ago, a huge hole opened up in Parnell in Auckland as one of the water pipe systems essentially collapsed because of uh, uh, overuse and not enough maintenance and new investment. A whole bunch of sewerage emptied out into the Hauraki Gulf to the point now where you can't swim in it. Uh, Auckland's population growth has been by far the fastest of all of the major cities and will continue to be. This is where migrants want to come first, or they actually end up here, even if they would go somewhere else. And uh, that is this hole in the ground is a symptom of the fast population growth without enough infrastructure. Auckland Council acknowledged yesterday they were going to have to spend over $200 million to repair and rebuild 1,200 kilometres worth of pipes which they haven't done, because, of course, the council cannot borrow any more under its debt restrictions without lowering New Zealand's sovereign credit rating, and the government won't give it more to do this investment because it has chosen a low-tax future, because that's what voters want. 
And the same for councils. They argue they're all about reducing the rates increases. Well, either you have the rates increases or the tax increases, or uh, you don't have the population growth. You can't have both. That's the problem we face. Secondly, the second example is in Wellington. The Upper Hutt Council has, like the other councils in Wellington, progressively and repeatedly not invested the um, amounts determined by the uh, accounts for their depreciation. The deal is when you record depreciation, you're supposed to spend that money on repairs and maintenance as you go. And councils haven't done that because they want to keep rates increases low and debt low. And so over the last 30 years, Wellington, like many other growth councils, has not reinvested enough. And of course, it's now a national joke, uh, Wellington's water problems. The Upper Hutt Council was told yesterday that 52% of its water escapes through leaks in the pipes every day uh, because it hasn't invested enough. And Wellington Water has told councils they need to uh, invest $2 billion to improve the water um, system to make sure it's clean, that we don't pollute the environment or kill people with uh, uh, water that's poisoned uh, or infected. And um, that has uh, meant that uh, we have this problem with water supply in Wellington, fast population growth, not enough houses, not enough investment in infrastructure. And <laughs> this summer, because it's an El Nino summer and there's not going to be as much water around, there will be water restrictions <laughs> in Wellington, even though we've just had one of the wettest uh, years on record. This is not sustainable, unless you deny the facts. We learnt yesterday that the mayor of Upper Hutt, Wayne Guppy, who has been the mayor for 21, sorry, 22 years, he was elected in 2001, 22 years as the mayor of Upper Hutt. So he has presided over all of this underinvestment and decisions about rates and debt. By the way, Upper Hutt is a very low debt. Um, uh, his response yesterday to being told that the region needed to borrow $2 billion because 52% of its water was leaking. By the way, Upper Hutt and the rest of Wellington do not have water meters and do not have water charges. Uh, his response was he did not believe his council officials, the officials from Wellington Water, telling him what was happening. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was the kaka. Three days before an election where we haven't talked about any of it. Kaki Town Hall.